The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. Okay, if you have a Bible, let's open it to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2. The title of the message is The Star of Bethlehem. We're going to cover the first 12 verses of Matthew, and um, we're going to talk about the Star of Bethlehem. I'm going to share some things If you've been here at Maranatha for a while, you've probably heard a little bit, Uh, but if you are visiting, there may be some things you never heard that before. So um, I pray that you will get your pencils out, pens out, your minds ready to hear and receive what God would say to us. Let's pray once more. Father, we open our minds and our hearts, and we now open the Word of God, the gospel, the good news, according to Matthew, your uh, disciple and your servant who opens the new covenant and is now telling the story of your birth and the miraculous sign of the star shining in the night sky, pointing to the fulfillment of the prophecy and promise and prediction that a Savior would come from heaven, that a king would be born, and that the world would experience the kingdom of heaven. So we ask that we might hear what the Spirit would say to us in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Okay, so this morning I only have uh, three life lessons we're going to pull out of these 12 verses. This uh, will be out of verses 1 and 2. So let me just read the first two verses, Matthew chapter 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. So they saw a sign in the heavens, some star called the star of Bethlehem. So here's our first life lesson. The heavens declare the glory of God. The heavens are declaring the glory of God. The star of Bethlehem was declaring the glory of the birth of the Messiah. And the glory of God is none other than the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Now, what I want to paint a picture for you is um, at, at this moment, the very moment Jesus was born, a stir was happening not only in the natural realm, but in the supernatural realm of heaven above, and all of the supernatural and spiritual world of the angels, the faithful to God, the fallen, and even on the earth. A stir begins the moment Jesus is born. Uh, As a baby, he has done no miracles, uh, nor has he, you know, given one sermon or shared one parable. He has not healed one person. Um, he, He has not walked on water. And he's just a baby. He, what, what do babies do? They make little baby cries. That's all Jesus had done. And yet his influence from the moment of his birth in the world is seen as magi, a caravan of them, uh, travel from the ends of the east and arrive at the place where he was born. And they bring tremendous wealthy gifts. And then they bow down, these wealthy, powerful men, ambassadors from far countries, and they worship this baby, the Lord Jesus. Now let's talk about uh, the Magi. We, here's a, one of the scenes, I think, from a recent movie done about him. And you know, it always shows that there were three Magi. And in all the Christmas cards, there were three Magi. 
And the Bible doesn't say how many there were. Uh, All we know from the Bible is uh, that they gave three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So some people read into that. There must have just been three guys. The truth of the matter is, because they were traveling from afar, because they were wealthy and they were powerful and they were ambassadors from other countries, um, they probably had quite a few. They probably had a protection unit with them. They had supplies. They had to protect their wealth as they traveled through the deserts from bandits and so forth. Um, It could have been a dozen. It could have been several dozen. We don't know. But the term magi refers to an ancient group of spiritual men who were philosophers, interpreters of dreams, um, because in the, in the spiritual realm, just like even Pharaoh, he had a court uh, of, of men, spiritual men, to help him, you know, he needed supernatural guidance. Interesting that they did believe that dreams were a way that the world beyond communicate to us, and sure enough, we know from the story of Pharaoh, when Joseph was brought down to Egypt, God communicated to Pharaoh, even though he was not a believer in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but because of his position. Egypt was a superpower in the world. He gave to the Pharaoh a dream. Now, neither Pharaoh nor any of his magicians could interpret it, but God sent his Hebrew servant, Joseph, who was able to interpret the meaning of the dream. He was telling Pharaoh, a great famine is coming to your part of the world. And if you will follow a wise plan and prepare, you and this part of the world will be spared. That's what Joseph told him because Joseph had insight and information, divine secrets that he could reveal. And it really showed the love of God for the Egyptian people. So also in ancient Babylon, they had a court of these men, magi, Uh, They were also astronomers. They believed that God used uh, the heavens also to reveal secrets and many things. Now, there was one man in the Old Testament named Balaam. He was a couple of books back ago in Numbers. He he was, uh, you know, kind of an unusual guy, very spiritual guy, but he was hired by the enemies of Israel. They said, we need divine help. Their God is too big. He, he, he defeated Pharaoh and his army and uh, God after God. So they went to Balaam. He was a spiritual guy. And they wanted him to curse the people of Israel. But every time Balaam went and talked to God, God put into his mouth to bless them. They got more blessed. They multiplied. They grew. He said, oh, they're going to get bigger and better and greater. And God loves them. And he said, stop, stop. Why do you keep doing that? But that's the story that unfolds with Balaam. But in the midst of all that, in Numbers chapter 24, verse 17, Balaam prophesies a word and a prediction uh, that will be essentially this Bethlehem star that we finally see now hundreds of years later, and the Magi follow that. So I want you to read with me from your notes, Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. Here's the prophecy. Let's read it out loud. I see him, but not now. I behold him but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, a scepter shall rise out of Israel. So that's the word of the Lord. Jacob, of course, had 12 sons, become the 12 tribes, becomes Israel. A king will be born, the king of the Jews. The scepter means that his kingdom will rule and reign. Now, I want to share with you something that's very interesting, because there is a great case Uh, to be made that this star of Bethlehem or star sign 
was actually in the constellations, that there was something that they saw in uh, the heavens and in the constellations. Now, in order to tell this story, I've got to take you on a little journey. So if you will turn with me uh, to Genesis chapter 1, the very first chapter of the Bible, where in the first verse it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And in verse 3, God said, let there be light, and there was light. But if you go to verse 14 of Genesis chapter 1, we're in the first couple of paragraphs of God creating the universe, and God says a very peculiar fascinating and interesting thing. In verse 14, then God said, because whatever needed to be created, the, the uniqueness of the God of all creation is he speaks and it is so. So he said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night and let them be for signs and seasons. If you have a pen or pencil, I want you to underline the word signs. So God is saying, I'm going to create lights and they're going to divide the day from the night. So you've got the sun that will be the light for the day. And then you've got the moon, which will be the light for the night. But it also, the lights of the firmament mean the stars, the billions of stars and galaxies out there, as well as the planets. So the sun, the moon, the planets, and the stars are said to be signs by God. Now, the Hebrew word for sign is ot or O-T-H. And in your notes, right after the word sign, there's a little parenthesis. And what that is, is the definition from Strong's Concordance of what the Hebrew word sign means. What does it mean that the sun, moon, and stars and planets will be signs? It means this, in the sense of appearing. There's something about the the lights of the heavens and the stars that that reveal something that is going to appear. Then a signal. God says, I'm going to use the lights of the heavens as signals. And then it also means an omen. Um, In other words, it is telling you, uh, portending, this is something that is going to come. It can also mean a mark. God puts marks in the heavens through the stars, sun, moon, planets and also a miracle. So that's fascinating. God says, I'm going to use uh, the sun, moon, and stars, as well as the planets, as signs and signals. Well, now we have to go to uh, Psalm 19, one of my favorite psalms in the Bible. Psalm 19, verses 1 through 4. Many of you that love and read through the psalms will be familiar with this one. It's one of the favorites. But in light of what we're sharing this morning about the lights of the firmament being signs and the star of Bethlehem, I think it's going to have even more significance. Here's what it says in Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament, it's the sun, moon, and stars, show his handiwork. So the heavens declare the glory of God. I used to think that simply meant, look, There's billions of stars and planets and sun and moon, and they're beautiful and they twinkle, and God's big and powerful and an artist. And I thought it ended there. But the heavens declare the glory of God. Think a little bit more deeply. What is God the Father? What is his glory? What or whom does he glory in? God glories in his son, Jesus Christ. The Bible is saying in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. Do the the stars point to Jesus 
And the Bethlehem star, they sure do. But look with me in verse 2. Day unto day utters speech. Did you know that there is a message that the sun, moon, and stars, as well as the planets, they're speaking? And not only are they speaking, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There's things that we can know from the creation of the heavens. And then he says, there is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In other words, it's like a chorus line and they're up there parading, declaring the glory of God. Well, this is fascinating. Um, What does this mean? Well, we've got one more place to go. So go with me to the book of Job. Job is the book right before Psalms and go to Job chapter 38, verses 31 and 32. Now, I have mentioned this before, but I'll mention it again. Did you know that the oldest book of the Bible is the book of Job? He said, but wait a minute, Genesis, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Yes, Genesis starts the story earlier than Job at creation, but it was written in the days of Moses. And before Moses was alive, was a man named Job. The first book ever actually written was Job. So you know the whole backstory where God is bragging about, have you, you know, he's bragging to Satan. Have you seen my son Job? He's awesome. He loves me so much. And Satan goes, well, yeah, I'm paraphrasing. Of course he loves you. You've spoiled him rotten. You've blessed his socks off. He, he didn't love you. He just loves you because all the goodies you've given. If you took away all those blessings, he would no longer love you. And God goes, oh, yes, he would. Watch this. And then God put limits, and poor Job is thrown into this horrible human suffering situation. He's begging God. He's pleading, and nothing seems to be going right. He doesn't understand what's going on. And then he begins accusing and and philosophizing and all. He says a bunch of crazy stuff. And then at the end, all of a sudden, God appears to Job. And all of a sudden, when God appears to Job, I mean, go from just, here's what Job said, wow, I'm seeing God, the creator of the universe. I heard about you, but now that I've seen you, and guess what happened? The moment Job saw the power, majesty, and glory of God, all of his questions went away. I think that, you know, how many of us have said, you know, when I get to heaven, I'm going to, well, what about this? And why did that? And you didn't, da, 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 da. And all of a sudden, we're going to see God and go, okay, that's okay. Whoo, man. Wow, that's awesome. But what's funny is that all of a sudden, you know, Job's had all these questions. What about this? What about that? And finally, he sees God, and Job just withers, and he's just looking up at the glory of God. And God says, you know what? You've been asking me questions. Now I'm going to ask you some questions. Because I don't know and I don't remember when I was creating and flinging the stars into the universe and creating the galaxies and the planets and the mountains and the rivers and all variety of fish and trees and birds and of the air. He goes, I don't remember you being there, Job. Where were you when I, out of my power and my glory and my majesty and my wisdom, created all these different kinds of flowers and trees and animals and creatures? you weren't there. So as God is asking these questions, one of the interesting things he asks Job is found in Job chapter 38, verse 31. He says, can you bind the cluster of the Pleiades? Now, I want you to underline that word Pleiades. It's one of the constellations in the heavens. And God asks him, or can you loose the belt of Orion? Underline that. 
That's another constellation. Hey, Job, can you bring out Maseroth in its season? Well, underline that one. If you have an NIV, it doesn't say Maseroth. It, it translates it into proper English, constellation. But if you have New King James or King James, it's got the Hebrew word, Maseroth. And if you look up what is the Maseroth, it's the constellations that are in the heavens. Or can you guide the great bear with its cubs? God is talking about all these constellations. Now, I want to share with you something that's very, very interesting. Josephus was a Jewish historian that lived in the time of Jesus about 2,000 years ago. He wrote the Antiquities of the Jews, and he wrote some interesting things. And 2,000 years ago, he records that the Jewish people had a tradition orally that was passed down that after Adam and Eve had sinned and they, they, they were thrown out of the garden and the curse came and thorns and thistles and disease and death and all of that, that God took Seth and began to tell a story using the constellations of how he would begin saving and redeeming men. Now, that would take many centuries to evolve and be fulfilled and be understood, but what's interesting is, guess how many pictures that there are in the heavens in an elliptical? There are 12 of them. Not 13, that's the number of the devil, but 12 is a number of God, 12 tribes. In fact, it is said by some of the Jewish rabbis that every one of the 12 tribes had a sign for their tribe, and the picture that was on their flag correlated with one of the 12 pictures that was in the heavens. So anyway, there's a fascinating, we don't have time to go into it, but if you're interested, we've got this little video you can get on our bookstore called The Christmas Star, and it goes into detail if you're interested to show you where in the constellation this star of Bethlehem may have appeared that was a sign that they had been watching and waiting for for a very long time. Now, uh, what's interesting about that story of the constellations, and I'll just end with this, is that the first one of the 12 is called Virgo. And Virgo is Latin for what? Virgin. You know it's God's story when he says, the story of redemption will start with a virgin. And I won't tell you the others, but you go all the way around to number 12, because it's in a circle. Virgo, the virgin is how it begins, and it goes around, and the 12th one is a lion, called Leo the lion, the roaring lion. So it's a beautiful, powerful story. Now, uh, there's also a case that can be made that the star was a manifestation and reappearance of the Shekinah glory of God, that it was maybe in a constellation, but it may also simultaneously have been a supernatural revelation of the Shekinah glory of God. The glory of God that was in the temple. Remember when uh, Solomon built the temple and they prayed and the manifest, visible, Shekinah light and glory of God came to the temple. But when Israel went in rebellion and started worshiping idols, there's a day where Ichabod, the light or the Shekinah glory withdrew and was left a dark house. God left the place because they had worshiped idols. But the prophet said there's a day when the glory and the light will come. And isn't it amazing that the very, at the birth of Jesus, of course, later he would say in his own ministry, once he grew up, I am the light of the world. But that Shekinah light may have been reflected already in the star of Bethlehem as a supernatural sign that the glory of God was now tabernacling among us through the Messiah, Jesus Christ. I believe maybe both of those can be true simultaneously. 
Now, the wise men, where did they come from? It says from the east. Well, I want to venture a little further than that. I believe they came from Babylon, modern country called Iraq. For a long time, uh, remember when the Jews were in uh, Jerusalem, they rebelled against God and God kicked them out. He sent them to Babylon. And they remained there. But then they came back. Ezra, Nehemiah rebuilt the temple. But did you know that we know that only a tiny remnant of the Jewish community that were brought to Babylon came back to Israel. Most of the Jews remained in Babylon. And in fact, Babylon was still the place of residence for the majority of the Jewish community, even as Matthew was writing his gospel. And at one point in history, there was even a very famous Jew who rose up to political prominence in the kingdom of a king named Nebuchadnezzar around 500 BC. Who am I talking about? The prophet Daniel, who was one of the king's wise men, you might say, or magi surrounding King Nebuchadnezzar. I believe it was Daniel who was there in Babylon, along with his friends, who planted the prophecy that was given in the book of Numbers, chapter 24, and then also added more prophecies because God gave to Daniel the exact timing of when the Messiah would come. So I've put here in your notes, and this is a whole other study on its own, but in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, the prophet Daniel is given a revelation or a vision of 70 sevens uh, that are determined on your people. And here's what he said. 70 sevens means cycles of seven years. 70 times seven equals 490 years. From the days of Daniel, he was saying 490 years from now, after 69 sevens, which is 483 years, the Messiah will come. Here's what he said, exactly 483 years after the decree to rebuild Jerusalem, Messiah the Prince shall come. Well, guess what? They, they have actually, if you calculate it, 69 sevens equals 483 years. How many days is that? You can write this down if you want. 173,880 days. Daniel prophesied that from the going forth of the commandment to restore or rebuild Jerusalem and to the coming of the Messiah, the Prince shall be 173,880 days later. Artaxerxes made the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. And there's a man named Sir Robert Anderson who did a calculation according to the Hebrew calendar. And he said, from that commandment, which is historically given, you count 173,880 days. And guess what day you land on? Palm Sunday, the day that Jesus rode on a little donkey into the eastern gates of Jerusalem. That was the time that the prophet said the Messiah would come. Add to that now, 30 years prior to that, uh, you have the, the star of Bethlehem pointing to the birth of the Messiah. Well, let me close by saying this. The Magi were very, they were known to be wise. And I know that there are many uh, smart people that go to Maranatha Chapel and that are listening to this message. And I wanna say to you on the authority of this story of the Magi who ended up bowing at the feet of Jesus. No scholarly person who follows the light God gives to them can miss worshiping at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.
For in him are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, Colossians 2, 3. And in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. So anyway, there's, there's a lot in that, but we'll leave that for just a moment. Okay, the significance of Bethlehem. So this, it's a little town, a little village, you might say. And it is the house of bread, and it is the shepherd's fields. So look, we've got to go back to uh, Matthew now. We leave Job. We come to um, uh, Matthew chapter 2, verse 3. It says, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Um, from a little bit what we know about Herod, he was a short man. He was of small stature, but he suffered from a huge ego problem. He wanted everybody, you know, to refer to him as Herod the Great. <laughs> um, and it is no surprise that he wanted to kill Jesus, for Herod wanted to be the only one to bear this title, King of the Jews. Herod was the king of the Jews. What? Some baby was born? Where? Bethlehem? I've got to get rid of him. I'm the king of the Jews. Everything Herod did was big. He built big fortresses and he used great rocks and the western wall where you see all the people praying there in modern Israel. Just one of those rocks in the western wall is 10 feet high by 10 feet wide and is 47 feet long, weighing 170 tons. How in the world did they engineer these huge stones 2,000 years ago? And he led at least a team of geniuses. He built uh, Herodian. He built Masada. You've probably heard of that down by the Dead Sea. The temple he renewed and built and added and expanded. He built Caesarea. But while he was a great builder, he was a cruel, paranoid man. He thought that his sons and his wife Miriam were plotting to kill him. So he had all of his sons and his wife put to death. Then a little bit later, he says, oh, gosh, I miss Miriam. So he built a statue of her to remember her. Oh, that was very nice. Um, <laughs> there was a saying in the days of Herod, and it went like this. It is safer to be Herod's pig than to be his son. Um, and because he knew that as he got to the end of his life, he wanted to be great. He wanted to be remembered in history forever as being great, Herod the Great. He realized when I die, nobody likes me and no one will mourn or cry. So he made a decree, every one of my uh, staff and magistrates are to be executed the same day that I die. He wanted to make sure people cried. So the day came, Herod died. And then his staff went, well, do, do you want to do it? <laughs> uh, do you want to do it? Mm, I don't want to do it. Well, he's dead. We don't have to do it. So they didn't do it. They just, you know. <laughs> but he tried. Now look with me in verses 4 through 6. It says, and when they had gathered all the chief priests and scribes uh, of the people together, they inquired where the Messiah was to be born. And so they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for it's written in the prophets, Micah chapter 5, verse 2, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, that's the tribe of David, are not least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will be shepherd for my people Israel. So um, another proof that Jesus 
is the Messiah is not only that his genealogy is from the line of David, but he was born where David was born. David, King David, was born in Bethlehem. And listen to this, Bethlehem in Hebrew is Beit Lechem, and it means house of bread. Wow. The very village he was born in means Bethlehem, house of bread. And Jesus, what did he say when he began his ministry? I am the bread of life. He who eats this bread shall live forever. And when we have communion and we pass out the bread, this is my body which was broken for you. How amazing that the bread of life was born in the very village named House of Bread. And then it is also important to realize, uh, you know what else Bethlehem was famous for? It is the place, and, and again, it's only seven miles from Jerusalem. Well, you realize that every year, especially at Passover, all the Jewish people have to come from wherever they are, north, south, east, and west, throughout the country or beyond the borders. They have to be in Jerusalem at Passover. And every family needs a lamb. They needed thousands and thousands of lambs. Well, they, where did they raise the lambs close to Jerusalem that could be used at Passover? Bethlehem is the place where the lambs, it was filled and covered. The hills of Bethlehem were covered with shepherds who raised sheep who were used every year for Passover. How amazing then that Jesus was born in the village where the lambs were raised to be sacrificed. And what does the Bible say? When John the Baptist pointed at Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God that will take away the sins of the whole world. And why then the very first witnesses to his birth in Bethlehem were shepherds. They were the shepherds of the sheep used for Passover. And they were the first ones to say, we have seen the Messiah. And the shepherds came and worshiped him as well. All right, well, let's go to the last life lesson as we close this out. We're going to look at the various responses, the Magi, uh, the king, uh, Herod the king, and the priests. So the Magi worshiped the king. Wise men still seek him. Wise men still worship him. Um, Herod feared the king. That's a very tragic uh, response But there are people right now in this very moment of history, you talk about, hey, Jesus, I love Jesus. I go to church, learn about Jesus, and they get afraid. Herod was afraid of the king, and the priests ignored the king. Here's the irony. So we we see that the star of Bethlehem led the, the Magi, let's say from the Far East or Babylon, And they go to Jerusalem. They know Jerusalem's the capital of the land of Israel. But they don't know where he was born. Where is the Messiah to be born in in this whole land? And they went to the priests. And the priests opened the Bible and they said, we know exactly where the Messiah is to be born. Here it's in the prophet Micah, chapter 5, verse 2. It's in Bethlehem. The magic go, wonderful, where is Bethlehem? And they go, it's nothing. It's just seven miles, just a few miles down the road. You're almost there. Go there and you can find him. What's ironic is that the priests who had the word of God had the prophecies, and when they were asked, could point to the shepherd's fields, that's where the Messiah is to be born, didn't themselves actually travel only seven miles to worship where Jesus was. 
What's tragic is you can know the Word, read the Word, uh, have an understanding intellectually of it, but until you follow it, until it moves you to walk, you know, that's why Psalm 119 verse 105 says, your Word is a lamp unto my feet. Underline that. You've got to walk with the light you have. You have to make actions. You have to make choices. You have to be intentional. Uh, Salvation is not just knowing. But salvation is when you activate your faith. It's a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. That's why a relationship with God is called a walk with God. So let's follow the example of the Magi who activated their faith. They traveled a great distance and they bowed down and they worshiped the king. Amen? Amen. Let's bow our heads and let's close in prayer for now. Father, we just come before you and thank you for your word. Um, We thank you for the example of, first of all, the Magi. These were notable men, powerful men, wealthy men. They brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh, representing gifts for a prophet, a priest, and a king. And they traveled a great distance at great expense and personal sacrifice. And when they finally came to Jesus, they got on their faces and they bowed and they honored you, and worshiped you, and believed in you. And I pray in the name of Jesus, everyone who hears this message will also follow the light that God has given to us through the Word of God and the prophecies and the predictions, because you rule and you reign, and only you predict the future, make promises, and then fulfill them and keep them. May every person here know that God is a good God and that you can be trusted and that you're a gracious Father. And though we have so much suffering that we go through here, Lord, wait until we see you, until we hear your voice, and until we are humbled by our sometimes accusing tone and questions. We don't know what we're talking about, but I pray, Lord, that we would be humbled and that we would follow the example of these wise men who worshiped the King of kings and the Lord of lords. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.